Welcome to SADS Live, a podcast production from the Sudden Arrhythmia Death Syndromes Foundation, the SADS Foundation. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ackerman, genetic cardiologist from the Mayo Clinic and director of Mayo Clinic's Winland Smith Rice Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic and the Winland Smith Rice Sudden Death Genomics Laboratory. I also have the privilege of serving as president of the board of directors at the SADS Foundation. On SADS Live, we answer your questions, talk to international experts in the field, and hear from patients and their families who are living and thriving with these genetic heart conditions. For more information and to find support, visit www.stopsads.org. That's www.stopsads.org. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to SADS Live, episode number 113 today. I hope you're having a great day wherever you are. Uh, maybe it's right here, real time, central time, one o'clock or 1.20 p.m. Or maybe it's down under in the morning. Good morning to my dear friend, Chris, and uh, the rest of you. So, but wherever you find yourselves, thanks for choosing to take this time out, either live or recorded with us at the SADS Foundation. I'm Mike Ackerman, genetic cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic and Mayo Clinic's Winland Smith Rice Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic Director and the Director of the Winland Smith Rice Sudden Death Genomics Laboratory. But I have the privilege of being with you here today in my role as President of the Board of Directors of the SADS Foundation, which is led by our CEO, Alice Laura. And on behalf of Alice and her staff, uh, again, thank you for being part of the SADS family. Check us out at www.stopsads.org. You can partner with us uh, with your financial means, top right corner, donate now, uh, get involved. If you are in need of support, that's what we're here for. We are the largest nonprofit advocacy organization devoted to families with a sudden cardiac arrest predisposing heart condition, a SADS condition like long QT syndrome. We're here for you to support you every step of the way with the expectation that once you've been diagnosed, evaluated, risk stratified, treated, that you should and will live and thrive despite your heart condition. Well, last time we had your questions and I tried to do answers, but your questions were really good. And in fact, one of your questions that you posed, I'm not sure I did as good uh, with answering it. And so we're gonna start with that question. And it has to do with the relationship between genetic congenital long QT syndrome and those patients who have symptoms of postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS or a variety of dysautonomias. And one of you wondered, what is the connection between the two? Is there a connection? And I don't know that I did as well. So first of all, remember that the symptoms of POTS, those young people with dysautonomia or POTS-like symptoms or the entity of POTS, which is multifactorial, is actually quite common compared to congenital long QT syndrome. POTS might affect on the order of, mm, let's say five, maybe as high as 10% of young women, less 
in young men, but still one to 5%, whereas congenital long QT syndrome affects only one in 2000 people. So most people with POTS do not have congenital long QT syndrome. Most don't. Many patients with POTS, however, have been misdiagnosed as having long QT syndrome because some of them will present with their symptoms. Maybe they just fainted. They go to the emergency department. They get it their first time ECG. And that ECG shows a QT interval that is longish, longer than normal, maybe borderline. And because of that, some people might have called them possible long QT syndrome. So POTS patients often will have a QT interval that is slightly longer than normal, and maybe if right after a fainting spell, longer than normal. That does not mean that they have long QT syndrome. Their QT interval is just reacting to the autonomic stress and distress. So be very clear and careful not to link these two conditions. Now, do some patients, the one in 2000 people who have long QT syndrome, can some of them have POTS as well? Yes, probably one to five to 10%, depending on male or female, meaning there's nothing about long QT syndrome that insulates you or protects you from having dysautonomias. And in my practice, I take care of over about 2,000 patients now with genetically proven long QT syndrome, no doubt about it, long QT syndrome. And about one, two, three percent of them also struggle with POTS-like symptoms and may be uh, clinically diagnosed with the dysautonomia of POTS. Well, I hope I've helped the directionality of those two uh, phenomenon. And now it's your questions in your order in real time. So Krishnan, hello, and is there, she's asking, is there any concern about bradycardia, slow heart rate, from the use of beta blockers triggering an arrhythmia in LQT1 and LQT2 in particular? Risk of atrial fibrillation with long-term use of beta blockers, second question. So you get two questions in one sentence. So no, there's really no concern. In drug-induced QT prolongation, bradycardia, slow heart rate is potentially agitating, and we may, in drug-induced QT prolongation, try to increase the heart rate. In LQT1 and LQT2, we use beta blockers to curb the adrenaline, and, some, and that slows down the heart rate. But by itself, that potential heart rate slowing is not LQT1 or LQT2 triggering. And your second part, there is no risk of atrial fibrillation with long-term use of beta blockers. In fact, beta blockers overall are a very safe drug. I'm not worried about a variety effects of that drug on different body parts, except as those of you know, there is some of us react to beta blockers in terms of the mood effect the CNS effects, the slowing effect, fatiguing, the blotting effect. Uh, and those of you have coined the term for me, the beta blocker 
zombie. So that part of the side effects, which is not most, only a small number of patients have the beta blocker zombie reaction. We tend to get more at Mayo Clinic because you're, you have declared yourself as the beta blocker zombie seeking a different treatment strategy to try to feel better every day of your life. Well, Carol from Facebook and hello, we have all kinds of social platforms, Facebook, SADS Live, and we're formally gonna be launching, yes, a SADS Live podcast. So we're gonna try to get this information out and your questions answered across as many platforms as possible. But back to Carol, uh, who's in desperate need of having a tooth pulled, ouch. And you have LQT1 and no one wants to do this, including the oral surgeons. It's been six months of infection in my gums. Do you have any suggestions? I'm sorry to hear that. I don't know how many times we need to tell our oral surgeons that it's safe, standard drill. If they're not comfortable, then you have to see an oral surgeon in the hospital to do what otherwise would be an outpatient procedure. But I guess you're just going to have to keep trying to find a dentist or an oral surgeon. We'll partner with your cardiologist who's taking care of your LQT1 to help them relax and not think that that dental procedure is LQT irritating. It basically almost never is and uh, we even now do wisdom teeth extraction as the standard drill because it's just basically never is irritating to the long QT and trying to organize an inpatient wisdom tooth extraction just has not been worth the extra steps for those who are uh, comfortable. Uh, let's see, scrolling down. SADS Foundation one, oh, reminding us to keep the questions short and maybe my answers too, so we can get through as many of them as possible. Um, oh, I like this one, Jason. Asking about Brigada syndrome patients, are they more susceptible to exercise fatigue? Nope, not at all. So if there is an impact on your cardiopulmonary fitness, can't use uh, fatigue, can't use, I mean, you can't use Brigada as the reason. Reminded of a recent patient who was asking me if their 10 milligrams of Nadalol was the reason for the fatigue as opposed to the 40, 50 pounds sitting uh, above the waist uh, as the reason. So sometimes the reasons are right there. It, it may be poor sleep health, it could be sleep apnea, it could be a variety of things that could contribute to exercise fatigue, but the Brugada syndrome substrate is not one of those. Um, let's see, we have that one again. Hi, Isabel, I uh, appreciate the kind word. And Jan, I already did it, Jan, www.sas.org, top corner, donate and be our partner. Well, Julie and Julie gets a question and I want to do a shout out for Julie as in thank you for your role for actually reaching out to me and telling me that I needed to clarify long QT and and POTS and I, hopefully I uh, you heard it and you think that I did well with that clarification and also for what you're doing to transcribe our question and answer sessions to have uh, those questions and answers archived. So Julie, appreciate you uh, 
thanks for doing that. And now your question. Your 29-year-old son tested positive for LQT2. All follow-up tests and ECGs are completely normal. Should he be treated? Good question. Uh, by guidelines, the guidelines tell us that a positive genetic test for long QT, no matter what the QT number, would advise prophylactic beta blocker therapy. If the QTC at rest is above 470, the advice is a class one recommendation, which by guidelines mean turn off your brain, treat. Uh, if you're under 470, the guideline says it's a class two, reasonable to do, should consider doing it, most probably would do it. Now, having said that, our program at Mayo Clinic has been leading the way with the notion of intentional non-therapy, as we call it, meaning we know you have long QT, at least in your genetic code, but we are choosing not to start you on prophylactic medications, procedures, therapies of any sort, but instead just put together the overarching QT preventative uh, measures for that person. The, we published papers to show who's at really low risk, we're not yet smart enough to declare somebody at zero risk, but then if we can find that low risk person and you are the ones who've helped me have the courage to move in that direction, because some of you have said, my long QT risk is so low, but you've created a new problem in my life called, I feel lousy every single day from the therapy. I'm one of those beta blocker zombies. Do I really need to be treated? And the answer is, in some cases, well-characterized, well-chosen, carefully thought through, we don't need to. And in fact, in my program, about eight to 10% of all of my long QT patients are currently untreated, intentionally not treated, just the overarching preventative measures. So I don't know whether your son does or does not need to be treated. Uh, every component of his evaluation needs to be weighed in the balance and then his and your long QT specialist can decide on the pros and cons of, of being treated. Uh, Debbie, um, had a, I had a scud. I'm not sure what SCUD is at 30. Um, so I'm not sure. They had genetic testing. Oh, my twin girls were six months old. They had genetic testing that showed LQT1. Also had another daughter five years later. She tested negative in 1996, but now at age 26, she has had syncope twice in dizziness. Should she be retested? Well, that's a really good question, Debbie. And again, I'm not sure SCUD, I'm guessing that might mean sudden cardiac unexplained event or something like that. There is something called SCAD, S-C-A-D, for spontaneous coronary artery dissection, but that and LQT1 doesn't go together. So I'm making some interpretations there, but I would say um, if there's any question or concern about your family's LQT1 causative variant, if found, it sounds like the timing of it, that would be found back in the time of research laboratories doing research-based genetic testing there would be no downside to having your 26-year-old daughter retested for the presence or absence of the family's LQT1 variant, just to double check that that research declaration back in 1996, when you were told negative, is correctly negative. It likely is, 
but just to be absolutely sure, clinical genetic testing, meaning not in a research lab, that started in 2003 in the United States. Andrew's told to limit exercise and specifically your heart rate due to your brigada, not only for the diagnosis, but also because of an external wearable defibrillator. When the ICD is placed, is managing a lower heart rate still a factor to be mindful of? I like the question, Andrew. Um, in general, so not your situation specifically, in my patients with Brugada syndrome, I do not give them a heart rate limit at all and sort of us uh, keep it secret between us. I almost don't give any patient a heart rate limit at all. Because once I have you treated and I'm pleased with treatment, then there's no need. Now, the one exception to that is some really neat data being discovered in CPVT. In fact, one of my colleagues, Christina Hauga in Oslo, Norway, who used to be with me here for a period of time, and I just adore Christina, she and her team have learned and are teaching us that in CPVT, we potentially can train some of the CPVT ectopy to go away. Now that's, we'll talk about that. Maybe we'll talk about it later. So that's the only setting a lesion, CPVT, where I might give a heart rate recommendation where if I know what heart rate their ectopy kicks in at, their skip beats, we throttle it down to a heart rate ceiling of 90% of that. So let's say, uh, ectopy kicks in at 150 beats per minute on the, my patient's stress test in CPVT. 90% of 150, do the math fast, yeah, 135. So I tell them, don't let your heart rate get above 135. And then three months, six months later, when we do their stress test again, their heart rate, their, their ectopy may not come out at a heart rate 150. Maybe it now doesn't come out until heart rate 160. So the point being, when I said I don't give anybody a heart rate limitation, CPVT, I do give them an exercise prescription. Brugada, yours, Andrew, no way, no need. Now, the only way they're probably suggesting that is just to make sure you don't activate your wearable defibrillator in terms of what threshold they set the shock at. But really, that threshold could have been and should be set higher than what you could naturally work your heart rate uh, into. But once you have that, if the defibrillator was indicated, is indicated for you, we set that ICD shock zone plenty high to where you can let your heart rate engine uh, run full speed ahead. Um, Corey's wondering what tests help doctors get the most accurate information about a patient's heart. Well, it really depends on what the situation is. Probably the test that we start with that's the most helpful is your story. Not very expensive test, but loaded with valuable information. What's your story? That's why we at SADS Foundation work to help get out the SADS warning signs. Have you fainted suddenly, unexpectedly in the setting of exercise? Second test is your family story. And the family history is so important. We at the SADS Foundation help you get out the warning signs. Know your family history. That sudden death of that cousin back in the day at age 13 while swimming, that may 
be relevant information to your situation. Now, after stories, then we do do tests and we tailor the test based upon what we're hearing and thinking could be going on. And so those tests might be electrical in nature, sizing up the heart's electrical system, ECG, Holter, stress test. It might be structural in nature, looking at the heart to make sure that the, the muscle is structurally normal and performing uh, normal at the functional level. And that might be an echo or a cardiac MRI for those families of ours that we're monitoring with ARVC or ACM. So the best test really depends uh, and this spectrum of tests as to what we think is going on. Thanks, Corey, for that. Um, Malaya, whose son has LQT1. Again, that's the most common genetic subtype of long QT syndrome. About 30 to 40% of all of our families are LQT1. And your son has had two back-to-back -back fainting episodes within a minute when he was upset and occasionally turns white with blue lips when really upset. Uh, then goes on, oh, I see part two. How can we tell if it's a breath-holding spell versus a cardiac event? Um, oh, this is really important. So some people, Corey was asking what tests. Well, there's also a device that some use and it's called an implantable loop recorder. It's like a miniaturized holter that goes underneath your skin, has a battery life of about three hours, and that device helps us achieve immediate rhythm spell correlation. And so some have asked me, why don't I use a loop recorder and just put it in all my patients? Well, because I don't need it. Where do I need it? Well, your son's situation may be one of those is if your team, your healthcare team, doesn't have a good feel in seeing, hearing, understanding the circumstances of that faint, because as a, a, as a long QT or a genetic cardiology specialist, I have to hear your story and determine, am I picturing that your heart is in normal rhythm when you fainted, therefore not long QT, not Brugada, not CPVT in origin, or am I hearing features of your faint story where I'm picturing that your heart rhythm went briefly into a dangerously fast, unstable rhythm that made you faint? If I concluded that that was a long QT1 triggered faint, that your son had back to back, then I need to introduce therapy pronto, or if already on therapy, then you just broke through your treatment and we need to intensify therapy pronto. On the other hand, if I think, yes, you have long QT, we know that, but you had a normal faint, not a long QT faint, like we mentioned at the very beginning, what about a long QT person who also has POTS symptoms, then I don't need to escalate therapy because you had a non-disease faint. If your team of physicians cannot decide which it was, I love the loop recorder in that setting because that means I will catch the next faint and I won't need my brain as much because now when they tell me I fainted, the rhythm detector of that loop recorder can tell you you're normal. Just had that happen earlier this week, one of my patients came and told me he was second place 
state champion, runner-up state champion in varsity high school wrestling. Congratulations. But he was telling me that during his first match, so excited about things that he had a weird sensation, uh, didn't faint, but a weird sensation. And the beauty of that is we had a loop recorder placed 15 months ago, show that at that exact time, during that time when he had that excitement spell, if you will, his rhythm was perfect. So you can immediately say, eh, no worry, had nothing to do uh, with your heart. Hope that helps. Um, Laura, what's the chances of long QT in pregnancy passing to the baby if the dad had LQT5? Great question. Whether mom or dad is the positive one, meaning owns, the long QT causative gene, in this case, LQT5, due to a gene called KCNE1, or and that specific long QT causative variant, if positive in mom or dad, the chances of passing it on to each child that you create, the positive one creates, is 50-50. So if it's the mom, half of the mother's eggs own, possess that long QT variant, that CPVT variant, that Brigada variant, that ARVC variant. If it is the dad, well, then half of his sperm are positive for that genetic variant. Therefore, half of the children create, or correction, each child that they create has a 50-50 chance of coming from the egg that was positive or the sperm that was positive. So 50-50. Um, back there, scrolling down. Oh, thanks, Lene. Sweet of you. Um, well, we did that one already from Malaya. I hope that was helpful. So, okay, Dark Moon. Well, I love that title read in European Heart Journal that a patient with LQT1 with beta blockers and syncope must have an ICD. Is that true? Fake news. So really important, lecture on this often. Most patients, most patients with long QT syndrome, with CPVT, with Brugada, do not need and should not receive an ICD. Some do. And we use a, uh, an ICD as part of your treatment configuration here at Mayo Clinic in about 15% of all of my long QT patients. That's about the same number as the other largest centers throughout the world. Arthur Wilda's in the Netherlands, Peter Schwartz's uh, in Italy. So that means most don't. Who does? Cardiac arrest survivors, yes. But long QT1, I would ask myself several questions. What beta blocker were they on? Were they on natalol or propranolol? If they were on metoprolol, then they did not have an on-treatment faint. They had a faint while being on the wrong treatment. So what medicine were they on? Second is, what about that faint? Let's make sure that we think it was a long QT faint as opposed to a long QT person who had an ordinary faint. We we've been talking about that uh, uh, together. So let's say I have a patient of mine, really was long QT1, really did faint from long QT1 and was treated. 
And the big thing then is, were they taking their medicine? The number one reason for an LQT1 faint breakthrough is, oh, by the way, I kind of stopped taking my medicine for about three days in a row. So then we have to work on compliance and medication adherence. But let's say it was the real deal, truly taking the medicine, truly was an LQT faint. Is that a straight line to a defibrillator? No, not in our program. That would be a pretty close to a straight line to, to intensifying protection with the left cardiac sympathetic denervation surgery because we know that that surgery's therapeutic efficacy is absolutely the best in LQT1. So there are other options than a straight to the straight reflex to the ICD. Um, Christine is wondering, how is it that I never knew that you had long QT syndrome until your sudden cardiac arrest? Well, not everybody with long QT syndrome gives the warning faint. Most do. So in my practice, again, I have approaching 1,800 patients with genetically proven long QT syndrome. Of those 1,800, 70% are still waiting for their first long QT episode, meaning most patients who are caught and found to have long QT syndrome will never have a symptom. That's good news. Now, 30% of my patients have had their long QT show itself, express itself by making them faint and wake up, faint and have a seizure, or faint and continue on to sudden cardiac arrest. So some of our patients like you, Christina, start with the cardiac arrest as the first declaration of long QT's presence. We don't know the why, and part of the, because we don't know the why, that's, that is why that many of us view that we ought to be doing universal screening for the early detection of long QT syndrome, which is an incredibly easily treatable condition when we find it. The debate continues, should we screen, should we not screen? Yes, you know my vote, we should be screening. We just don't quite have the tools yet to make the implementation of a universal screen work. But should we be doing it? Yes, we should, exactly for your situation so that we would have identified you before the cardiac arrest, treated you with the knowledge of the presence of your long QT, risk stratified you, dialed in your therapy, and then in all likelihood, that subsequent undiagnosed and untreated sudden cardiac arrest, which you experienced, would not have happened. Um, uh, let's see, Amanda. Okay, Amanda, thoughts on allowing our LQT1, this is LQT1 day, your nine-year-old son play hockey. We were told no competitive sports nine years ago, but not sure if things have changed. He is genetically positive and on 30 milligrams of natalol. Well, it still is debatable, although I think the minority voice of patient empowerment and shared decision-making among our families after being diagnosed carefully evaluated, properly treated, and counseled that you can stay in the game of life. 
And so uh, all I can tell you is that in our program, we've chosen the patient family empowering approach rather than the, sorry, Charlie, you can't do anything. And with that approach, I, I have the privilege of caring for now about 800 athletes with a variety of genetic heart conditions, 600 of whom have long QT syndrome. And those who have chosen to be an athlete at all levels, little leaguers like your nine-year-old son to professional ranks, their disease triggered event rate has remained zero for lethality in 20 years and overall a very low annual event rate of non-lethal events on the order of a one to two percent chance per year of having a long QT triggered spell that may or may not even happen during your sporting activity. So we choose to help the families live large and part of that living large depends on is that hockey for your son does that seem closer to oxygen i love it i gotta have it or is it more like meh, whatever optional oh optional oh oxygen and i don't know if you can see over here but see my newest poster the girl who played hockey a newest book written by the dad of one of my long QT patients. She was professional hockey player, originally told, sorry, can't do anything. And then came, saw us, cared for us, and had returned to her competitive sport that provided her oxygen. Sometime I'll have her and her dad, the author, Chris Middlebrook. Uh, I haven't finished the book yet. I just got it in the mail. Yeah, but maybe we'll have them on one of the programs. I think that might inspire your nine-year-old son. In addition, we just presented on Monday, just five days ago, at American College of Cardiology, a late-breaking clinical trial presented by one of my college students, Kate Martinez, who worked with us last summer. She's going to be a senior graduating at Loyola Marymount in a couple months. And she looked at my elite athletes among the 800, Division I University or professional, along with the elite athletes from three other programs, Dr. Baggish in Boston, Dr. Dermot Phelan uh, in uh, the Carolinas, and Dr. Matt Martinez, also known as Kate's dad, uh, in Morristown in New Jersey. 76 elite athletes, Division I University, two-thirds, professional one-third, with a variety of genetic heart conditions, half hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a fourth uh, long QT syndrome, event rate among the elite, very low, 95% of those elite athletes not having any events. So whether you're a little leaguer or a professional, the we can and should be helping you reach your dreams to where you are if sport is your passion if art is your passion if academics is your passion that what you achieve will be governed by your drive and your discipline and not your diagnosis so i think your son deserves and you deserve to hear the current view of of good news Greetings to Scotland and Germany. Oh, love it. Um, would still 
and I've seen that what, where we are in the, the hour flying by on us. And Susan's wondering to hear my thoughts on ATS, which ATS is called Anderson to Will syndrome. It gets lumped in under the umbrella of long QT syndrome. I don't think it should. In fact, the number one gene, KCNJ2, that is found often in Anderson to Will syndrome patients has been dubbed LQT type 7. I disagree with that. I don't think we should be calling that because it, they're not really long QT syndrome. What an Anderson to Will syndrome patient has is a variety of non-cardiac findings. So things involving their dentition, their jaw, their back, some scoliosis, um, a tendency to a periodic paralysis where they might have their lower extremity strength suddenly give way. And then their heart, the electrical signature of their heart is not a long QT interval, but a long QU interval, the letter after QRSTU. Yeah, the letter after U. And so we treat it differently. We and others have found that for Anderson to Will syndrome patients, that the ectopy from the heart seems to be better controlled by medications like flecainide or mixilatine. Uh, unlike long QT syndrome patients whose 24-hour halter is almost always clean, no ectopy, skip beats, irregular beats, patients with Anderson to Will syndrome tend to have a lot of skip beats, but yet those skip beats don't seem to get disorganized into a danger rhythm very often. I love my families uh, that I get to care for with Anderson to Will syndrome. And we're learning more about that slow. I would say the knowledge is emerging slower with ATS than some of our other genetic arrhythmia syndromes. Um, scrolling down. Um, Christina. Okay, so Christina, as we're approaching the top of the hour, I'll give you on this one. She has long QT syndrome and on Nadalol. I love it. That's the best beta blocker. Never missed a dose. Great job. That's so important. Can't emphasize that enough. And your heart went into SVTs. Why didn't it help stop that? Well, that's partly uh, the observation we started with long QT and POT. So SVT, a supraventricular tachycardia situation where the top chamber might go into a rapid rhythm for a variety of reasons. There's a lot of different uh, components or diagnoses under SVT. SVT is sort of this catch-all umbrella term. So it depends on what kind of SVT it was, but sometimes beta blockers work very well, but your SVT may or may not have had anything to do with your long QT syndrome. In other words, SVT is actually a more common heart rhythm condition, almost never genetic than long QT syndrome, which means let's say a half a percent or 1%. I pulled that number out of thin air. Some of you can correct me as to the frequency of SVT in the population, 
but that that's kind of how many people have an SVT is probably less than that one out of 200, let's say. That's compared to one out of 2000 who have long QT syndrome. So there will be 10 times more people out there with SVTs than long QT syndrome. But it does mean that in my long QT syndrome population of 1800 patients that a half a percent of them are allowed to have, oh, by the way, I also have that top chamber rhythm thing of SVT. And so we need to address that SVT, which might require change in your medicine, additional medicine, doing a procedure to get rid of that SVT circuit, uh, which is an ablation, whereas we basically don't do ablations for long QT syndrome itself. So somebody needs to stare at things, Christine, and figure out what is the name, the precise name for your for your SVT. And, and so, and we'll conclude with Dark Moon, you're very welcome. I hope our comments earlier um, were helpful. And we are at the top of the hour. And, and so I know there's a couple more questions who came in. These, those questions from next in line, Hillary and Kayla and Jennifer uh, and the rest get to be brought to the top of the list for our next question and answer session, which might be, your questions keep coming on in. It may be two weeks from today, March 24th, for SADS Live number 114, or we'll do it the next time after that. The other announcement to, to make is put on your calendar, March 21, 11 a.m. Central Time. I'm really excited. We, as you know, just wrapped up now, SADS Live 113. But I'm going to be joining a dear friend of mine, Dr. Shu Sanitani in Canada, for his and the SADS Foundation Canada's chapter of Let's Talk SADS Live, episode number three. I can't wait to join uh, them for that conversation. I'm glad that I got in, invited early. Uh, to uh, the, the launch of Let's Talk SADS Live. And so if you want, mark your calendar. Our next time together could be March 21st, 11 a.m. Central Time for joining Dr. Sanatani and me as I get to be the guest for his program and SADS Foundation Canada's program called Let's Talk SADS Live. Hope you can join me then and until then, I will see you in two weeks. Meanwhile, I leave tomorrow. I'm so excited. I get to spend two weeks seeing families from Southwest United States as I do my first rotation on the Mayo Clinic Arizona campus, where in Scottsdale, we will be bringing and building uh, the foundation for the Winland Smith Rice program to be, meet the needs of families over there who can't. Uh, have, don't have the ability to get themselves to Minnesota in February and March. Imagine that. So looking forward to that. Maybe check us out and follow me on Twitter if you want. I'll make some comments of, with what I'm learning along the way. So next time, see you March 21st, Shusan Atani's Let's Talk SADS Live number three, or back here two weeks from today. Until then, be well, everyone. 
blessings to each and every one of you and go out there and live and thrive despite your heart condition. Thanks.